uh, we sang that. Oh, okay. Don't want this falling off in the middle of the message. Well, hopefully you all had a good week. I'm enjoying the temperature change. I love fall. It's my favorite season. And so uh, it was quite literally the last day of summer, and then the next day of fall, it dropped 20 degrees. It's, it's great. Well, this is our last Sunday in the book of Zechariah. And uh, we've been on a journey the last couple months looking through Haggai and Zechariah, trying to capture God's vision for covenant during our current situation and days ahead. And I hope it's been an encouragement to you. I hope, you know, if, if, you're, if you don't remember what we've been over, watch and listen to the sermons again and see the journey that God's taken us on. Uh, with one of the major themes being, do not decry small beginnings. You know, we're, we're kind of very much in a restart with uh, COVID and the world and everything else. We're adjusting to what God has for us in this season and this day and age. And, uh, and so we, we need to take a look at the big picture. Uh, my son Judah came home from church the other day. Someone handed me a paper, uh, something they'd worked on in, in kids' church, and uh, it was a, a picture, it was a cut, cut and paste thing of the armor of God from Ephesians 6, which is pretty cool, right? I'm glad my kids are learning about the armor of God in kids' church, but I took a look at this picture, and uh, on his figure, he drew a face, with uh, bubbles as to what the guy's thinking, and he says, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I had to laugh at the honesty, right? Because even when we're wearing the armor of God, that doesn't necessarily mean we want to go into battle. <laughs> um, and yet, we know that there are battles ahead of us if we follow Jesus. And uh, I love the honesty, because I, if you remember Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, he he's, knows what's about to happen, and he's, he's in, in such uh, turmoil that he's, he's sweating drops of blood, and, and he even tells the Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. So even if you're fully wearing the armor of God, even if you're ready for battle, it's okay, like my son Judah, who can't spell do right, uh, I don't want to do this. And so today's passage, like many prophecies, is bittersweet. It's got those things in there that you really don't want to face, but ultimately God's good purposes and plans are there. So we're going to read Zechariah chapter 14, starting in the first two verses. It says, Watch for the day of the Lord is coming when your possessions will be plundered right in front of you. I will gather all the nations to fight against Jerusalem. The city will be taken, the houses looted, and the women raped. Half the population will be taken into captivity, and the rest will be left among the ruins of the city. First thing I want to point out about this passage is that although it sounds awful, it still says, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. It reminds me of Psalm 118.24. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Now it's uh, your birthday, Christmas, different times of year. You can easily say that. 
It's harder to say it on days like the beginning of Zechariah chapter 14. How? How can we trust in God? How can we uh, have this attitude, whether it's a good day or one of those awful, terribly, no good, rotten, bad days? Because he's in control. And even reading this in Zechariah 14, God says, this is coming. This is coming. Be prepared. Um, ultimately, maybe not in the moment, but ultimately you'll be able to rejoice at what God can accomplish even in the greatest tragedies of life. So, but these two verses do sound like the worst news possible. And so let's kind of look at it just briefly from the perspective of who this letters are originally written to, right? It's to Zechariah, it's written to the people, they're out of exile, they're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, they're rebuilding the walls, they're rebuilding the temple. The whole passage up to this point, especially the first five, six chapters, he's getting them to believe that he's faithful. He's getting them to believe his promises. He's saying, no, don't build the city walls here. I'm going to grow this city to this point, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to fight your battles and all the rest. And then we get to this. And he says, your possessions are going to be plundered right in front of you. They're going to take things from you and steal it in broad daylight, and you won't be able to stop them. All the nations will be gathered and fight against Jerusalem. And so as you're rebuilding the city and the temple and the walls, you may be thinking hearing Zechariah 14. This is the last chapter, by the way. You may be thinking after all the other 13 chapters, what's the point? Why are we rebuilding again if it's just going to get torn down again? This city will be taken. Oh, again. Houses looted. Wonderful. Women raped. Half the population put into captivity and the rest will be left among the ruins of the city. I can imagine hearing Zechariah's prophecy here and saying, wait, we just came from exile. We are pursuing God. We want his best plan for us. We don't ever want to be going back there. God, how can this be a plan of yours? We don't want to go back into exile. We don't want to be taken. So, I think the recipients of this letter, if they had an uh, armor of God piece of paper in front of them, they probably would have written the same thing as Judah. I don't want to do this. It's hard to fathom God allowing these things to happen for any reason. But we do know that God balances his grace and justice. That he loves the perpetrator as well as the victim. And he is the God of second chances. If not so, we wouldn't have Abraham as the father of the nation of Israel. I mean, this is a guy that, that traded in his wife twice to save his own skin. And then took his wife's servant as a wife and then treated her like a slave and forced her to leave. Moses would just be a failed Murderer who's a renegade in the desert the rest of his life. David would be an adulterer and a murderer. Saul would not be the primary author of the New Testament, but another murderer and persecutor of the church. So God's timing is not our own. And there are times that he allows his people to go through hard, painful, or difficult processes so that he might reach more people with his love and grace. Not saying God does these things to us, but He allows things to happen to us for the gospel to go forward. 
I think that's why we had, a, a, two years ago, we had a whole season of going through the book of Acts. Because you can always say, well, the good old days were better. <laughs> I, we got it easy compared to the early church, right? We don't have doors closing in our faces and, and people sh- shoving us out and trying to kill us and whole towns kicking us out and, and governments publicly beating us and flogging us for the gospel. Never once do we read the book of Acts and say, well, God wasn't with them. Look at those terrible things they're going through. It says that those were being added to the church daily in the midst of that. And so in the midst of trying or difficult seasons, some of which you may be facing right now personally, God has a reason to build the church through what you're facing. (coughs) I remember as a 13-year-old, my earliest thoughts when my mom was diagnosed with cancer, she was the most loving, honorable, and honest person I knew. And I kept thinking, why is God allowing her to go through this? When you're 13, you still struggle with the thought of, well, bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. Well, that's, that's not scriptural. But I remember thinking through this, God, why her? Well, when I was 33 and she was taken home, I understood, right? Because through those 20 years, my mom, who was an amazing woman to begin with, became a much more amazing person by the end because her faith and relationship with Jesus grew all the more. And all her hardship and pain drew her closer to Jesus and it allowed his light to shine more clearly through the cracks in her life through the pain, through the heartache, through the turmoil. And so the closer she got to him, the more he shone through her. And so the beauty is that God will never leave us in our pain and our misery, but his redemptive work will come about right at the right time. Verses 3 through 5. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he has fought in times past. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will split apart, making a wide valley, running from east to west. Half the mountain will move toward the north and half toward the south. You will flee through this valley, for it will reach across to Azale. Yes, you will flee as you did from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all his holy ones with him. God will never stop fighting the battles for his people. Now we can ask, can you move a little sooner, Lord? But he moves when the timing is right. How many times in Zechariah has God promised, I will do it, I will do it, I will do it. So we're in the last chapter, yes, and this is not great news, yes. But we can't discount the other 13 chapters. A prophecy like this needs to be balanced with the rest of the book. So even when your worst nightmares may come true, God will remain faithful and will eventually be your deliverer. Once again, we see this as a prophecy that was given 400 years before Jesus' arrival. And uh, no wonder they thought Jesus was going to be a conquering king. I mean, this is a conquering king passage, right? God's going to step down on the Mount of Olives. 
and his presence. He's going he's gonna to defeat all the nations in front of us. And, and there's a splitting of the mountain olives. And, and then we're going to flee. Like it's, yes, there's even passages in Zechariah that show the suffering servant and the conquering king. And we're all the same way, right? Let's ignore the suffering part. Let's just focus on the conquering, right? That, that's who we are. That's what we want to be about. But as we see even from Jesus' life and example, you don't get the conquering king without the suffering servant. And so following Jesus means that we get to be suffering servants as well for the conquering king to come. They looked and looked for this moment, and we still do. For although Jesus was on the Mount of Olives many times, as we see in the Gospels, it never happened that there was this great divide, this earthquake that split the Mount of Olives from east to west. Now, if you, I should have put a map up here, but if you look at Jerusalem, there is the temple and the old city of David, and there is a valley, and then the Mount of Olives. There is a valley there, but it runs north to south. This valley will go east to west and creating this path. It's, it's like, it, it, prophetically, I'm sure they're reading this, it seems like them like the Red Sea. We're, we're surrounded by the most powerful nations in the world. We have no hope. We've been defeated. We've been plundered. All the terrible things that could happen has happened. And now God is parting the Mount of Olives, the Red Sea, so we can go through. We believe this moment to be the second coming of Christ. So whether it happens in our lifetime or not, we're going to hold on to the promises that God is going to make things right in the end. But we also know things will get worse before his coming. Who are the holy ones that come with him? Another English translation reads, the saints. So 1 Thessalonians 4 in the New Testament will add to this moment. It says, the dead in Christ will rise first, then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So though we have battles ahead, we know that Jesus is coming. And whether we die before his return or we're still living, at that moment, we'll get to join him in his victory. That's encouraging. That is so encouraging. So no matter what age or stage of life that you're in, and you don't know what the future holds, you do know what the future holds. God's got this. He's coming. Verses 6 through 9. On that day, the sources of light will no longer shine. Yet there will be continuous day. Only the Lord knows how this could happen. There will be no normal day and night, for at evening time it will still be light. On that day, life-giving waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half toward the Dead Sea and half toward the Mediterranean, flowing continuously in both summer and winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, there will be one Lord. His name alone will be worshipped. Now, There is only one occurrence in Scripture that I know of where there's an unusually long day, and that's in Joshua 10, when uh, God is fighting their battles. Yes, they're in the battlefield, but as, as they're fighting, God allows the day to, to linger so Joshua can get the victory. The only other time that I know of where there's anything similar to this is creation, right? On the first day, God says, let there be light, 
but it's not until the fourth day that the sun and moon and stars is created. <laughs> so what was that source of light? Well, it was God himself. And he's saying, once again, the source of light won't be the sun. It'll be the S-O-N. And uh, this seems to match what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 29 through 31. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And on that lat, on then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens. And there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with the power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth. All, um, <clears throat> yeah, that's the passage. So, <clears throat> um, so we see that this is very prophetic, and, and that now the Gospels and, and the Epistles are backing this up. The other imagery that you see here is with the Mount of Olives being broken in two, and now this water source uh, coming from Jerusalem, heading south and, and then west. What is that form coming out of Jerusalem? The cross, right? Life, truth, hope in that day coming from that perspective. Revelation 22 talks about a river of life flowing from the throne room of God in the new Jerusalem down the main street at Christ's return. So we see that at this time, the core necessities that we need in life, life and light and truth and water, will be directly received in and through Jesus. And, and at this point, God will be, Jesus will be recognized as king eternally. Now, the victory he won at the cross made him king and lord of all already. <laughs> He's already on the throne. We talk about that all the time, right? When you're facing difficulties, what do we say? God is on his throne. He is king and lord already. This is just his arrival. He's, we're in this gracious period where he's allowing people time. He's allowing us as his believers to be his ambassadors, his emissaries. That's why we are evangelical in nature. That means we don't just sit around and wait for Jesus to show up. We have a job to do. There is a lost and dying world out there that needs to hear the gospel, and we are sent out to them to show them what, what a relationship with God looks like. And so this day is coming. Verses 10 through 15. All the land from Geba north of Judah to Rimon in the south of Jerusalem will become one vast plain. But Jerusalem will be raised up in its original place and will be inhabited all the way from the Benjamin Gate over to the side of the Old Gate, then to the Corner Gate, and from the Tower of Hananiel to the King's Wine Press. And Jerusalem will be filled, safe at last, never again to be cursed and destroyed. And the Lord will send a plague on all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their people will become like walking corpses, their flesh rotting away. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day they will be terrified, stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will fight their neighbors hand to hand. Judah too will be fighting at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the neighboring nations will be captured. Great quantities of gold and silver and fine clothing. The same plague will strike horses, mules, camels, donkeys, and all the other animals in the enemy camps. If there's any confusion uh, that this is an end times prophecy, I think verse 11 clarifies that. 
He says, and Jerusalem will be filled, safe at last, never again to be cursed or destroyed. That sounds pretty complete, doesn't it? Safe at last, never again to be cursed or destroyed. And it's at this point that God brings judgment on those that attacked Jerusalem. In this passage, I believe Jerusalem to be both physical and metaphorical. I believe Jerusalem to be an actual place that is being talked about here. Um, it's, it's, it's the place where God's presence resides. And so that's where you have in the book of Revelation, there's a new Jerusalem being built. Jerusalem has become synonymous with the place where God's presence dwells, where God's people reside. And so whether this is talking exactly about the earthly Jerusalem or somehow transitioning to the new Jerusalem, I, I don't understand exactly how those pieces in, and, and I don't know if God gives us a lot of clarity. There's a lot to study here. There's a lot to debate, but I think it is talking about an actual place, but I also think that it's somewhat metaphorical because Jerusalem in this passage is also those people that are gods. It's the, the, it's the people that make a place, right? If I were to go back to, to uh, I just had my, my 25-year high school reunion, and uh, I didn't go to it. Do you know why? Because it's the people that make the place. And those that were showing up for the union weren't my people. <laughs> Even Joe there were like, no, we're not, we're not going. I, I see Joe every week. He's one of my people. We went to school together. Um, that, that's, that's what I'm talking about. And so this, the new Jerusalem, I think, that they're talking about is not just God's people. Post the cross, Jesus opened up the gates, as we talked about last week, even with him talking about living water with a Samaritan woman. I believe this metaphorically in a sense that Jerusalem is also the place where God's people dwell in his presence. And that's what he's referring to as well. Now, this plague described sounds like a zombie apocalypse, doesn't it? You have uh, walking corpses, rotting flesh, rotting eyes, rotting tongues. It sounds like the walking dead to me. But it's reminiscent of what God did in Egypt centuries before. A plague will hit the surrounding nations that stand against God, yet those who are my people will be safe from this. If you remember the plagues of Egypt, the first two or three affected the Israelites as well. And then the last seven didn't touch them. I think, as I've studied the book of Exodus, I think God allows the first couple to, to affect them as well. So they'll understand as well, oh, I'm dealing with God here. Yeah, I, I've got to be in relationship with him. It's not just I'm his and I'll be fine. There's got to be some sort of give and take. But as you get to the later plagues, they don't touch God's people. And the one that really always stands out to me is, is the plague of darkness, right? Darkness covers all of Egypt except for the land of Goshen, where the Israelite slaves are living. And, and I, in my mind's eye, I'm not sure if this ever really happened, but I can see Pharaoh sitting. He's got the, he lives in the highest place in all the land, and he's, and he's sitting in his palace, and it's dark, and he can't see a thing, and he's got his bug bites all over him, and smelly frogs still laying around, and all this stuff that's just, he's just miserable, and he sees a glow on the horizon. The only possible source of light he can see. Ask the servant, what is that? Well, that's, that's the slave encampment. They, are, they have light. In the last days, that's how it's going to be again. 
God's people will be safe in his presence and the nations will suffer because of the choices they've made. Instead of getting lost and trying to understand this judgment or if a zombie apocalypse is really coming, there's two things I think we should pull from that. God's judgment on those that have turned and harmed us and slandered his name will be just as equal to the offense. God's judgment will eventually fall. So in these days where we're saying, when is he going to pay people back for what they're doing? When is consequence going to be coming? I thought God was just. Just wait. (laughs) Just wait. And maybe in that day, you may be praying something different. Oh God, be gracious to them. Please, they've suffered enough. Because that's the heart of God. The second thing is we need to make sure that we're not among those who are judged. (laughs) There's two camps. In Jerusalem, you're safe, not cursed or destroyed. The enemy's camp, plague on every living thing. How do I know which place I'm going to end up in? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Don't decry the little beginnings. Your little choices add up to big results. So in this day where we live in relative peace and comfort and wealth, and we know those days are coming ahead, what are we choosing? What are we choosing? 16 through 19. In the end, the enemies of Jerusalem who survived the plague will go up to Jerusalem each year to worship the king, the Lord of heaven's armies, and to celebrate in the festival of shelters. Any nation in the world that refuses to come to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of heaven's armies, will have no reign. If the people of Egypt refuse to attend the festival, the Lord will punish them with the same plague that he sends on the other nations who refuse to go. Egypt and the other nations will be punished if they don't go to celebrate the festival of shepherds, shelters. Now, this doesn't seem to be kind of a final judgment yet, does it? Again, we could debate all the process of how the end times are going to work. I mean, people have spent centuries trying to figure out what's going to happen one after the other. But as I read this passage, it looks like there's still choices to be made. That there is a time when God is going to be ruling on earth and everybody knows it, but he's still saying, you must come and celebrate this festival of shelters, and if they refuse, then there'll be drought. If, if Egypt refuses, they'll receive plagues. They still have some form of choice. And it's funny that Egypt is singled out. I almost think it's Egypt saying, well, hey, drought's not a problem for us. We deal with drought all the time. We've got the Nile River. <laughs> That's, that's, good. that's been there for centuries. It's always going to be there. And God's saying, yeah, yeah, you, you don't get off. There's going to be a consequence that, that you don't like either. But why the festival of shelters? Why not Pentecost? Why not Passover? Well, the festival of shelters is the last and the longest of the great yearly celebrations that the people of Israel have celebrated for centuries. And the beginning of that festival season starts with Passover. It celebrates and remembers the tabernacle that God chose at Mount Sinai to dwell with his people. He made a way for his people to dwell in them. And again, you come back to the imagery, even as the tabernacle was set up, it was set up to be in the middle of the camp and spread out. It also is a time where people move out of their homes and they live in tents for a week, remembering that their people 
once lived in tents for 40 years before they came to the promised land. And to me, it's, it's not ironic that God would call and demand the nations to celebrate this, whether they're former enemies or not, because he's saying, this festival, this thing that has been celebrated for centuries is now a reality. I, God, have come and conquered, and I am king on this earth, and I now dwell among you. And at least once a year, you're going to come and recognize the fact that God dwells among you. You're going to leave your world. You're going to come to me. You're going to get out of your comfort zone. You're going to stay in cabins. You're going to stay in tents, and you're going to worship me. You see, even in judgment, God seeks to make his enemies into friends and bless them. Even in this command, he's saying, come, experience a week in my presence. It's always our choices that cause us the greatest harm or allow us to receive God's grace. And yet the same lifelong lesson still has to be learned. To be in God's presence, walking in obedience, is life and blessing. To rebel is hurt and destruction. Can we learn that lesson now? Church, can we learn that now? To be in God's presence is life and blessing, and to be away from it is to suffer and, and be cursed. Can we just, do we have to wait for this to come about? I really don't want to. <laughs> I just want the fullness of his presence now. Verses 20 and 21, the end of the book. On that day, even the harness bells of the horses will be inscribed with these words, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the temple of the Lord will be as sacred as the basins used beside the altar. In fact, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of heaven's armies. All who come to worship will be free to use any of these pots to boil their sacrifices. And on that day, there will no longer be traitors in the temple of the Lord of heaven's armies. Why horses? Horses are used for battle. And the horses that are used to shed blood are now going to be set aside for holy use because God has already conquered. <laughs> Holiness to the Lord. They'll have bells on them. Everything inside the city will be made holy as well. He'll make every common, ordinary, daily tool and make it holy for his purposes. We are just jars of clay that he's making holy as well. The common and the ordinary made holy. And then we get this picture of God clearing the temple, right? There will be no more traitors in the temple anymore. Well, you know why? Because the sacrifice has already been paid. <laughs> no need for that. Jesus was the eternal sacrifice. And so this is, again, it ends the book in a way that, that's something they can look forward to, something that they can hold on to, the promises of God, uh, a time when, when Jerusalem will finally be safe, God will conquer their enemies, he'll make even everything in the city holy and pure, he'll dwell in their midst. And we take Zechariah 14 and say, Amen, so be it, in your timing, Lord. So, Zechariah ends this message with an eternal future for every believer. And so, again, here's how we close up the, the whole series. 
Do not discount small beginnings. Why? Because God's final chapters of the earth's story are glorious and his plans are eternal. The last chapters, the last pages, the last moments of this earth story are written. Our story? No, because we're eternal. (laughs) So, what seems small, minuscule, minute now has repercussions for generations. And I think that is the call of covenant and the church as a whole in this day and age. I am here as your pastor because those that started this church said, feed my lambs. Had a focus on kids and youth and generations. Their small little acts have made huge changes. We just celebrated Billy Slusser's homecoming. You know, her and Bond started the health and welfare ministry in their home. We'll just hand out food out of our house. And then we found a place in the church. We used to do it in this very room. The storage was over there. Now it's over here. Now, now we're reaching hundreds of people every month. Small beginnings. So, whatever your day, whatever your age, whatever your time, you may look at your, your given day and say, well, I didn't do much for the Lord. If you did it for Him, and you listened to His voice, and you walked in obedience, you can't measure what some of those small beginnings did. You won't know until you reach glory. You may have said two sentences to someone one day, and it got them to see the faithfulness of God, and they'll say, I'm here because you started the ball rolling in my life. And so that's the message for us today. Don't decry our small beginnings now. Let's wake up with joy every day, saying, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I don't know what the day, and, and, and I can attest to this because I've had a, a week where I've been tired and weary. I'm still battling this cold. You can hear it in my voice. It's not a lot of joy in that, right? But you cannot decry what small things God does even in a week like that. Amen. Lord, I pray that we would not swiftly move on from the lessons you've taught us in Zechariah and Haggai, Lord. That we would always keep the cross before us, remembering that we are who we are because we've been bought with a price. That sin and death and guilt and shame does not have to dictate our future. That when temptation comes, we have the victory in Christ through the shed blood of the Lamb. But God, also keep before us the time and the moment when you'll come in the clouds and glory and that trumpet will sound and you'll come for your bride and, and, and that our future is secure. And, and between this moment and that moment, God, there are harder days ahead. Following you doesn't mean that our path will be easy. Instead, your word tells us that it's, it's a narrow way. Um, it's not broad that leads to destruction. It's a narrow path. But it's a path where you walk the journey with us. And you are clear. You have a purpose and a plan for our everyday. And if we seek your face and we walk in obedience, all these small beginnings will have huge repercussions for generations to come. So God, let us embrace this calling and design for our life in the season. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we close out the service, I invite the worship team to come forward and um, respond as the Lord leads you. Again, I I never assume to know 
exactly how God's speaking to you all as individuals. Um, but I do know he's speaking to each one of you as individuals. And the message he has for you is unique to you because he loves you uniquely. And you just need to respond as he calls you to.